Our scripture reading this afternoon comes from Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 3. This is in connection with the first petition, or rather the introduction to the Lord's Prayer. The phrase, Our Father who is in heaven. And we're going to read chapter 3 of Paul's letter to the Ephesians in connection with that, especially um, leaning on verses 14 onwards. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. We also read from Lord's Day 46 of the Catechism together. That will give us some focus as we consider the beginning of the Lord's Prayer. Lord's Day 46, page 560. Why has Christ commanded us to address God as our Father? To awaken in us at the very beginning of our prayer that childlike reverence and trust toward God, which should be basic to our prayer. God has become our Father through Christ and will much less deny us what we ask of Him in faith then our fathers would refuse us earthly things. Why is there added in heaven? 
These words teach us not to think of God's heavenly majesty in an earthly manner and to expect from his almighty power all things we need for body and soul. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you look back on your life so far, what do you regret the most? It's an interesting question to ask, especially if you ask it of older people. Boys and girls, maybe you should ask your parents when you come home from church. Ask them, what do you regret the most in your life? There are all sorts of things we can regret when we're young. Maybe you made bad choices. You're stuck with the consequences. Maybe you fell in with the wrong crowd. Maybe you made educational choices that limited your horizons. And now you have no, no opportunity to change that anymore. Or maybe it wasn't anything drastic. Maybe it was just that your spiritual life when you were younger was so mediocre. When you're young, you can often feel like the world is waiting for you. You have all these dreams, all these ambitions, all these plans. It's not like you don't think about other people at all. Maybe you're very considerate of others. But often what is lacking is, is... something more subtle. What is lacking is the most important thing of all. Desire to see God glorified in our lives. Often our younger years are characterized by a profound self-centeredness. When we're young, our worldview revolves around our own music, our own social media posts, our own friends, our own desires, our own feelings. It's all about us. And it's not like we're consciously self-centered. It's not like we chose to be this way. It's, it's just that we haven't matured in the faith long enough to be able to get over ourselves. And then when you do mature in the faith, when you, when you grow over the years... When you reassess your life with the wisdom of hindsight, you look back and maybe you regret how self-centered it was. How so much of your life was spent just thinking about yourself. Maybe you echo the words of Psalm 25, verse 7, Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. And what is striking about that psalm, come to think of it, is is that he actually refers to the Lord's steadfast love. The Lord's steadfast love is the covenant love that he shows to his people. And it's steadfast because it doesn't change. It's based on the work of Christ, and that work is perfect and complete. 
So think about that. Even when you were self-centered as a youth, even when you were sinning, the Lord's steadfast love never changed. It's not as if he ignored you when you were young and only now begins to notice you when you start to pay attention to him. No. God's love always comes first. His covenant promises always come first. We saw it again this morning. That's why Christ has commanded us to address God as our Father. The Catechism says Christ has commanded us to address God as our Father to awaken in us at the very beginning of our prayer that childlike reverence and trust toward God which should be basic to our prayer. God has become our Father through Christ. So you hear that word awaken. That suggests that this childlike reverence and trust does not come naturally. And awakening is an ongoing process. Continues throughout your life. And as we continue to grow in this area, His command shapes our prayer. His command shapes how we approach God. And His command shapes what we ask of God. So that is also what we will pay attention to this afternoon, that Christ has commanded us to address God as our Father, that His command shapes how we approach God, and that His command shapes what we ask of God. One phrase that really stands out in the first part of this Lord's Day is that phrase, childlike reverence, to awaken in us at the very beginning of our prayer, that childlike reverence, childlike reverence, And it stands out because the word reverence comes from a Latin word that means respect or even fear. So that's an interesting phrase from that perspective. Childlike reverence. Respect or even fear. Now the world that we live in doesn't really understand what reverence is anymore. Outside of church you will probably not find reverence anywhere else. We do know lots about fear, though. Regardless of where you stood on the COVID issues in the last two years, we can all agree that a lot of people react, how a lot of people reacted was driven by fear, and that was true, whether you were on one side of the issue or on the other side. Probably all of us have been guilty of that in different ways, that we were driven by fear. There's an incredible amount of fear out there. Now, a catechism refers to childlike fear or respect. That's a different kind of fear. That's not a fear of death, but the fear of the Lord, the kind of fear that is shaped by respect. People who have this fear are people who know the Lord, who walk with the Lord, whose lives are shaped by a deep awe of the Lord, and who have a profound respect for the Lord. The first place where you learn this kind of respect is at home. You learn it in the context of your relationship with your parents, often your relationship with your father. Maybe you remember your father from when you were small. He could do anything. He could fix anything. He was strong enough to lift anything. There was nothing that he couldn't do. Maybe maybe you even went to school and you bragged about your dad. My dad is stronger than your dad. Kids do that sometimes. Anything he did was amazing. He could do no wrong. Childlike, ah. Or maybe, maybe you didn't have that relationship with your father, but maybe you 
you felt that way about your mother. You looked at her and she, she was the glue that held your family together. It seemed like the world of adults was, was this magical world where, where parents, people could do anything. You stood in awe of their abilities and you trusted them completely. As you grew older, you slowly crossed over into that adult world yourself. Something changed and you realized that's not so magical after all. You discovered that your parents couldn't do everything. You discovered that sometimes they're afraid too. You still respected them, but you also realized they've got shortcomings. Wow. And as parents become older, they also regress. And eventually they become childlike again. And the rules are almost reversed in a sense. So your relationship with your parents undergoes a lot of change over time. Not just from your side, but from their side. At some point, they become more and more dependent on you. Maybe you you mourn the loss of, of an ideal. You mourn that sense of confidence in your parents. You realize that things were not what I thought. But then in all of that, we have this this relationship with God, our Heavenly Father. And that never changes from His side. It changes from our side. We do get to know Him better over time. We grow closer to Him, but it never changes from His side. God is powerful beyond measure. A reading refers in, in verse 20 to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. Consider that far more abundantly than all that we can ask, all that we would dare to ask, even all that we could think of. We have a pretty good imagination, but, but there's going to be a limit at some point. Whatever your limit is, God goes further, beyond all that we can ask or think. And Ephesians 1 verse 19 refers to the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. Power here means the the ability to do something. There's no way to contain or to measure or to quantify or to limit the power and the ability of God. This power is inherent to who God is. In fact, unlimited power is so much a part of of who God is, that in Mark 14, verse 62, the Lord Jesus says, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead. Ephesians 1, verse 19, Paul refers to the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. So Jesus was raised from the dead by the power of God and that very same power is at work in us and is available for us today. God is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. And he is at work in us today, now, already. How do you know? Well, you have faith, don't you? Where do you think that came from? If you have faith, it was because you were regenerated by the Holy Spirit. You've been called to believe. 
You are spiritually, you're not just physically sustained from moment to moment. You are spiritually sustained from moment to moment. And not only that, but one day you will be raised from the dead by that very same power. God raised the Lord and he will also raise up by his power. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6 verse 14. And he says in Philippians 3.21, he will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. By the power, there's that word again, that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So as a Christian, from beginning to end, your life is surrounded, permeated, carried, sustained, held together by the power of God. And that shaped, that shapes how you approach him. You've been called into spiritual life by his power. You're sustained by that power. One day you will be raised by that power. And all of that is in the background in verse, verse 20, when it says that God is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. That is going to shape, that should shape how you approach God with reverence and awe. The Catechism reminds us that God has become our Father through Christ. And really all of, all of the gospel is packed into that phrase. You may remember from the last verse in Luke chapter 2 that Adam is called the Son of God. Our first parents were God's children in a certain sense. But they fell into sin. They became estranged from him. And since then, every person that has been born into this world has been born spiritually dead, spiritually orphaned, so to speak, except for one. The Holy Spirit actually has to spiritually recreate us, regenerate us, renew us. In order for us to be able to believe, God has to give us new spiritual life. And that's his power at work. The Bible teaches us that the spiritual life that God creates is actually a new creation. It is creation ex nihilo. He's calling that which is not, as if it is, and it comes to life. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Ephesians 2 verse 10 says that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. We have been created. We need to be recreated. It is as people who have been recreated that God, that we realize that God has adopted us. It's promised to us in our baptism. We, we didn't realize it at the time. We don't realize what we have received until we grow up and become aware of what God is doing in our lives. And when we become aware, we learn to echo the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans 8. And you know those words. Some of you have them memorized. He writes, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So we, we have become God's children through adoption. We have regained that sonship, that daughterhood, so to speak. But now we have more than Adam did. Because Adam, you remember, did not have Christ. We do. We have Christ. God has become our Father through Christ. 
And because it is through Christ, we can be sure that the adoption is real. It's not something that, that, that we thought of. It is not on the basis of our merits. It's on the basis of Christ and his merits. And because it's on the basis of his merits, you can count on your adoption being real and on your sins being truly forgiven. That means that there's nothing standing between us and our Father. He has become our Father through Jesus Christ. Nothing will ever take that away from you. And you can be sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, you see how he's working with the theme of power, neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else, and all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's your Father. Imagine the privilege. You get to call Him Father. Even angels cannot call Him Father. Consider again, as we have done before, the closing words of Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O you His angels, you mighty ones who do His word, obeying the voice of His word. Bless the Lord, all His hosts, His ministers who do His will. God is surrounded by innumerable angels, a host of angels, heavenly beings who exist only for one purpose, and that is to serve and obey. That is their motto. Heavenly beings that we could not even begin to imagine. You get a glimpse of them sometimes in the pages of Scripture. Intimidating. Terrifying. Isaiah in the temple full of smoke. Ezekiel seeing the glory of the Lord approach him over the Kibar River. God surrounded by the seraphim. Some scholars say that the word comes from seraph, to burn, the burning ones, fire beings, morally pure. And yet, they cannot call him father. He's given that privilege only to us. So perfect works will never give you that privilege. Even if you were to live a morally perfect life, and none of you have, and I have not either. But even if we could, that would still not give us the privilege of calling God our Father. Only divine adoption does that. God has to say that first to you. God has to call us his children before we can call him Father. The gospel is that God did say that, and he did it on the basis of his Son, do we, do we fully grasp what this means? Do we fully comprehend the scope of the privilege that has been given to us as human beings, as God's children? The Catechism says that Christ has commanded us to address God as our Father to awaken in us at the very beginning of our prayer, that childlike reverence and trust toward God. Why does that childlike reverence and trust need to be awakened? Because it is dormant. Because so often we... We just treat prayer as a duty. We've not really understood that God is our Father. The throne room of heaven is open, and we sleepwalk through the doors. 
Even there we find the gospel, though. God speaks to his sleeping children. Maybe you're a parent and you've had a child in the night that is sleepwalking or sleep-talking. There, you, you see them come out of bed late at night. And they're there, sort of, but not really. You talk to them and, and they say something that makes no sense at all. What do you do while well, you tuck them back in again? You love them, even if they're upset. Even if they interrupted you, you love them anyway. You tuck them back in. You kiss them goodnight. And in a way, that's what our relationship with God is, is like as well. As you mature as an adult, you sometimes realize that you've been sleepwalking in your faith life. You, you didn't have that childlike reverence and trust because you were never mentally present to begin with. Or if you were, it wasn't at, at the level that, that should be expected. And as you mature in the faith, you begin to see how sinful that actually is. How sinful it is to, to disobey this command because that's what it is. It's a command. Christ has commanded us to address God as our Father with all of the weight that that entails. And we have not done that. Not consistently. As we mature in the faith, we should sense a corresponding increase in reverence and trust. Christ has commanded us to address God as our Father. His command shapes how we approach God. And His command also shapes what we ask of God. Prayer is something unique in the Christian life in the sense that prayer changes us. It is in prayer that we gain a perspective on the, on the world and ourselves and our place in the world. We learn our place in the world on our knees. Often you don't understand something until you compare it with something else, right? Is, is this not one of the, the, the fundamental elements of learning? And it's true throughout your life. You get presented with something. As a, as a very small child, maybe your first toy, you got presented with a triangle. And you hold it, you bite on the corner, you don't really know what it is, and then you get presented with a square. And you compare these two things, and you see, well, a triangle is not the same thing as a square. So you understand what the one is because of its relationship with the other. And it works that way with, with all sorts of stuff in life, with, with ideas as well. Even in theology, there are many things that you only understand when you compare them with other things. That is, by the way, why it's helpful sometimes to study theological errors and heresies. And we do do that in our, our later catechism classes as well, because you understand the one by comparing it with the other. It's a basic principle of education. Now, through prayer, God educates us. It is through prayer that we learn our place in the world, because we... We, so to speak, compare ourselves with Him. We reflect in prayer on the differences between us and our Heavenly Father. And we begin in prayer to, to realize how small our requests often are, how limited and constrained our thinking is. When Paul says in verse 20 that God is, is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, this is not just an encouragement to be bold in prayer. It also exposes our lack of boldness in prayer. So what should we ask for? Well, in verses 16 through 19 of our reading, we see prayer with heavenly priorities. Let's look at those a little bit more closely. 
First in verses 16 through 17, he says that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And bear in mind, again, that this is a prayer report. Paul is telling these people what he prays for. He bows his knees before the Father. This is what he prays for, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit and your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And to be united with Christ in this way is not something mystical. Well, um, it is mystical uh, in the sense that we don't fully understand it, but it is not mystical in the sense that, that you have this ecstatic emotional experience. It's not as if, you know, this, this was often what the, the, the desert fathers and the desert mothers, as they're called, the, the people, the hermits that emerged in the 4th and 5th centuries and afterwards, what they wanted. They wanted to, to go into the desert and to be separated from everything, to fast and to pray until they had some sort of a visionary, mystical experience. And then they, they, they knew that they were near to God, or so they thought. But, but, but the real way in which we're united to Christ is through faith. Through faith. And notice what he says in what follows here. That you, he says first verse 17, Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. In other words, this is, this is a, a corporate knowledge He's praying for, for strength to comprehend, not just as individuals, but corporately with all the saints what the love of God in Christ is like. It's not just that we're united to him individually, we are also united corporately. We experience all of these things together as church community. It is God's desire to build us up together in the faith. The you in those verses is Plural. Paul is calling us to comprehend with all the saints what is the extent of the love of God. In other words, we are to pray together, but there is a sense in which others are involved in our prayers. Are we a church that prays together? Do you ever pray for your fellow church members? And when you do, do you pray the kinds of things that Paul prays here? Have you ever thought maybe about taking these verses and writing them out maybe? on a prayer card, you pray these things for people in church? Or do you focus on more practical matters? What if we all began to pray the words that Paul prayed here? What do you think would happen? What if we pray that each of our church members would be strengthened with power through his spirit and their inner being so that Christ would dwell in their hearts through faith, that they, being rooted and grounded in love, would have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that they would be filled with all the fullness of God? What would happen to our church if we prayed that for each other regularly? What would happen if you, say, printed out the word list and prayed for one word per day and prayed these sorts of things and then waited to see what would happen? What would that do to our church life? You see, now we're starting to think and what God promises is even beyond anything that we could imagine. Now, how you pray will also shape how you think about others. God is our Father. 
Right? Underline that word our. He's our father. We share him with other church members. So, so what it says about us, it says about others as well. That he is our father. He's also your father. He is the father of each person in the pew beside you. So one application we can make here is that a good prayer life will also translate into respect for your fellow believers. They are, after all, children of God as well. God is very, very protective of his children. You have no idea how protective he is. He says in Zechariah 2 verse 8, He who touches you touches the apple of his eye. And so anyone who harms God's children has God to reckon with. Anyone who speaks ill of God's children has God to reckon with. That God, the one with the unlimited power. The one who sees all, who knows all, who judges the thoughts and attitudes of your heart. Start to see where some of that, that respect comes from. Our problem is that when we look at the world, we tend to find what we expect to find. Do we expect God's fatherly love in our lives in the way that Scripture describes it to us? If we don't really expect it, then we should not be surprised if, if we don't see it either. Our world is shaped by what we expect. That's why verses 16 and 20 are, are so striking because they, they go beyond anything that we could expect. Imagine how astounding, consider how astounding these, these verses are. It refers in verse 16 to the riches of his glory. The riches of his glory. It's not cheap. The riches. What is, who is the richest person you can think of? And they're nothing in comparison with the riches of the glory of God. The riches of his glory. According to the riches of his glory, he grants you to be strengthened with power through his spirit and your inner being. There's no limit on that. You never get to the end of it. You can never plumb the depth of the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, verse 19. And he's able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, verse 20. You never, it never runs out. So what can we expect from him? Verse 16, we can expect his presence in our lives. Verse 16, we can expect his power in our lives. We can expect his guidance so that we are rooted and grounded in love. We can expect a growing maturity, verse 18. We can expect above all his love, verse 19. The love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Those are all things that you can expect from your God if you pray to him. And in that sense, God always answers prayer. After all, prayer is communion with God. We always receive these blessings in communion with him. In that sense, there, is, is, there are no unanswered prayers in the Christian life. Prayer is always communion with God. We always receive these blessings from him when we pray. He might answer our particular request with no instead of yes, but he always answers our prayers. As a father, he's able to give us what we need. Therefore, we should praise him and trust him, even when we don't understand what he's doing, even when he doesn't give us the material things that we pray for, even when he does not answer our requests with the answer that we had hoped. 
We already know from Lord's Day 1 that we belong both in body and soul to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Did you notice that that phrase, body and soul, comes back in the, next, the second question and answer? We should expect from His almighty power all things we need for body and soul. Body and soul that encompasses all of life. And even in death, He is still with us. In fact, one life is not enough to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ. This life is not enough. This life is too short to fill that all in. You need eternity to really understand this. And that's what God promises to us. An earthly father, however, does not always give us what we want and what we ask for, and neither does God. But listen, you don't only love your parents when they give you what you want, correct? You know your parents love you even if they don't give you what you want. Because a relationship is so much more than that. And we know that the relationship is real because God already spoke to us even before we spoke to him. He spoke in his word. He spoke through the covenant promises. Prayer is just our response to what he said. So let us pray together. Let us pray individually. Let us pray in faith. Let us remember those words from Psalm 25 verse 14. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. He makes known to them his covenant. May we so grow to full maturity. And when we do, we will realize more and more that he was there all along. And we will echo Paul. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. May he answer that prayer in our lives as well. Amen.